You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Phalanxes of Atlans by F. V. W. Mason Chapter 1, Part A The ice suddenly gave way under his foot, hurling Victor Nelson violently forward to lie in the deep snow at the bottom of a tiny crevasse, down which the merciless gale moaned like an anguished demon. "'It's no use,' he muttered bitterly. "'We've fought hard, but we're done for.' He lay still, stupidly watching his breath form tiny beads of ice on the ends of the fur which lined his parka. Until that moment he had not realized how thoroughly exhausted he was. Every muscle of his starved, bruised body ached unbearably. It wasn't so bad lying there in the soft snow. He could rest, then look later for the ice hummock behind which the plain lay sheltered. Rest! That's what he needed. A good long rest. But deep within him a primal instinct stabbed his waning consciousness. No! he gasped and blinked his reddened eyes behind smoked goggles which dulled the shimmer of the aurora. If I stop I'll never get up. Shaken by the terrific velocity of the arctic gale he numbly clambered to his feet, then stooped with a stiff awkward motion to retrieve a Winchester rifle which lay half buried in the snow beside the blurred imprint of his body. Wonder if Alden had any better luck? The question burned dully in his brain. Don't suppose so. There can't be anything alive in this god-awful wilderness. As he stumbled on he found no answer in an unbroken vista of wind-scored ice and drifting snow that, swirling high into the air, momentarily cut off the view of that black line of ice-capped mountains barely visible on the horizon. Yes, if he hasn't found anything we'll be dead or frozen stiff before tomorrow. His soul, that of a true explorer, revolted, not at the thought of death, but that his and Alden's courageously won discovery of a majestic mountain range, towering high over a polar region, marked unexplored on the maps, would now never be made public. Leaning forward against the merciless icy blast, he painfully picked his way over a treacherous ice ridge, to be faintly encouraged by the fact that the tower-like hummock of ice marking the position of the plain now lay but a few hundred yards ahead. Bitterly he cursed that demon of ill-fortune who had sent the blinding snowstorm which had forced down the plain ten long days ago, at the very beginning of its triumphant return flight to the base at Cape Richards. Since that hour the storm-gods had emptied the vials of their wrath upon the luckless explorers. Day after day cyclonic winds made all thought of a take-off suicidal in the extreme. Three days ago the last of their food had given out, and he mused, Starvation is an ill companion for despair. Slip, slide, and fall. On he fought until the final barrier was reached, and he stood staring hopelessly down into a small natural amphitheatre which sheltered the great monoplane. The ship was still there, its engine snugged in a canvas shroud and with the soft dry snow banked up high in the lee of its silver-gray fuselage. Numbly, like a man in the grip of a painful coma, Nelson shielded his face with a furry hand to scan the surrounding terrain. Hell! The door-block of the igloo they had built was still snowed up. Alden was not there. "'He's not back,' he muttered, while his body swayed beneath the gale which smote him with fierce unseen fists. "'Poor devil, I hope he hasn't lost the way.' All the bitterness of undeserved defeat stung his soul 
as he started down the incline into the hollow. Suddenly he paused. The rifle flew into the ready position, and his chilled thumb drew back the hammer. What's this? On the snow at his feet was a bright scarlet splash, dreadfully distinct against the white background. While his dazed brain struggled to register what his eyes saw, he looked to the right and left and discovered several more of the hideous spots. Then an object that gleamed dully in the polar twilight attracted his attention. He lumbered forward, stooped stiffly, and caught up a long half-round strip of bronze. What? Why? Oh, I'm crazy. I'm seeing things. The pain in his empty stomach was now becoming excruciating. To steady himself he shut his eyes, shook his head as though to clear it, and then looked again at that strip of metal in his hand. Attached to it were two slender strips of leather-like straps ending in small bronze buckles. Why, it's not from the plane, he stammered aloud. Damned if it doesn't look like a greave the old Greek warriors used to wear to protect their shins. Suddenly alarmed and mystified beyond words, he shuffled forward over the snow, the greave yet clutched in a fur-gloved hand. Presently two more objects, already half buried by the stinging, swirling drifts, caught his attention. One was the stock of Alden's rifle, protruding starkly brown from the unrelieved whiteness, and the other was a broken wooden shaft that ended a graceful but wickedly sharp bronze spearhead. "'I've either gone crazy,' he said, "'or I'm delirious. Yes, I must be clean nutty.' There couldn't be a human settlement within a thousand miles. Let's see what happened. On the snow of a little wind-sheltered space behind the igloo he discovered the unmistakable and ominous signs of a struggle. An indefinite number of footprints, blurred but enormous in size, were marked in the snow. Here and there deep furrows mutely testified how Alden and the enemies against whom he struggled had reeled back and forth in vicious combat over a considerable area. Then, shaken by a new fear, he discovered Alden's left glove and a rag of some peculiar thick material that seemed to have a metallic finish. But what aroused his gravest fears were the numerous splashes of blood that here and there streaked the snow in gruesome relief. Only a moment Nelson stood, shaken by the merciless wind, scanning the piece of bronzed armor between his gloved hands with a fresh interest. It was beautifully fashioned and decorated at the knee-point with the wonderfully wrought figure of a dolphin. If he could only think clearly! But his brain seemed to lie in a red-hot skull. Whatever's happened, he muttered, I'd better not waste time. They couldn't have been here so long ago. Poor Alden! I wonder what kind of devils caught him. Even before he had finished the sentence, the aviator had taken up the partially obliterated trail of splattered blood-drops that what he sought appeared to be a marauding party of giants restrained him not at all. The one clear thought burning in his weary brain was that Richard Alden, his best friend, the man with whom he had travelled over half the world, by whose side he had faced many a perilous situation, must at that moment lie in peril, the extent of which he could only surmise. "'Must have been about a dozen of them,' he said thickly, and holding the Winchester ready, he commenced once more to plod on through the stinging sheets of wind-driven ice-particles. More than once he had great difficulty in not losing that crimson trail, for here and there the restless white crystals completely blotted out the splashes. All at once Nelson checked his pathetically slow progress, finding himself on the top of an eminence, 
looking down in what appeared to be a vastly deep natural amphitheatre of snow and ice. At the bottom, and perhaps a hundred yards distant, was a curious black oval, from which appeared to rise a dense, wind-whipped column of whitish vapour. "'My eyes must be going back on me,' muttered Nelson, through stiffened lips. How intolerably heavy his fur suit seemed! His strength was about gone, and that curious black, mouth-like circle seemed infinitely far away. But spurred by fears for his friend, he started downward for the precipitous trail leading directly towards it. Once he stepped inside the crater, he became conscious of a terrific side-pressure which gripped him as a whirlpool seizes a luckless swimmer. The wind buffeted him from all angles, dealing him powerful blows on face and body, which, too strong for his weary body, sent him reeling weakly, drunkenly, across the hard glare ice towards the vortex. Twice he slipped, each time finding it harder to arise, but at last he approached what on closer inspection proved to be a subterranean vent of black rock. "'Steam!' he gasped. "'It's steam coming out of there!' Swayed by a dozen conflicting emotions, he paused, the Winchester barrel wavering like a reed in his enfeebled grasp. "'The whole thing's crazy,' he decided. "'I must be frozen and lying somewhere delirious. Poor Dick! Can't help him much now!' Like a man in a nightmare who advances but feels nothing under his feet, Nelson staggered on towards that huge, gaping aperture of black rock. On the threshold a pool of melted snow-water made him stare. Hell, he said, it's only a volcanic vent of some kind. Then dimly came the recollection of Eskimo legends concerning thermal springs beyond the desolate and unknown reaches of Grant Land. His mind in an indescribable turmoil, Nelson splashed across a hundred yards of sodden snow, then shivered on wading knee-deep through a pool of melted ice. Now he stood on the very threshold of that awful opening, dense clouds of vapor, beating warmly against his chilled features. His goggles fogged at once, blinding him effectively, as, with reason staggering under the accumulated stress of starvation and the circumstances of Alden's disappearance, he groped his way a few feet into the vent. With his left hand he pulled up the glasses from his sunken, bloodshot eyes. "'It's warm, by God!' he cried in astonishment as the skin exposed by lifting the goggles came in contact with the air must be some kind of earth-warmed cave. Increasingly mystified, he caught up his rifle and strode on down the passage, at that moment illuminated by the last unearthly rays of the aurora borealis. A single dazzling beam played before him like a powerful searchlight, to light a high-vaulted tunnel of basalt rocks, which were distorted by some long-gone convulsion of the earth into a hundred weird cleavages and faults. For that brief instant he found he could see perhaps a hundred feet down into a high-roofed passage, along the top of which poured a tremendous stream of billowing, writhing steam. "'If this doesn't beat all,' he murmured. But for all of his apprehension he did not pause. Those bloody splashes bespeaking Alden's pressing need urged him on. "'Looks like I'm taking a one-way trip into hell itself. Well, we'll soon see.' Slipping and sliding over an almost impassable array of black rocks and boulders, Nelson fought his way forward, conscious that with every stride the air grew damper and warmer. Soon trickles of sweat were pouring down over his chest, tickling unbearably. 
Then all at once the ray of light faded, leaving him immersed in a blackness equaled only by the gloom of a subterranean vault. He stopped, and resting his rifle against a nearby invisible rock, threw back the parka hood and pulled off his gloves. He was amazed to feel how warm the strong air current was on his hands. "'Beats all,' he muttered heavily. "'I wonder where they've taken Alden.' Meanwhile his hands groped through fur garments now wet with melted snow and ice particles, searching for the catch to open that pocket in which lay a small but powerful electric flashlight, an instrument without which no far-flying aviator finds himself. After a moment's fumbling his yet stiffened fingers encountered the cylindrical flash, and with a low cry of satisfaction he drew it forth to press the button. "'Mighty useful! I—' The words stopped, frozen on his lips. Before the parka edge his close-cropped hair seemed to rise, and his breath stopped midway in his lungs. Sharp electric shocks shook him, for there, half-revealed in the feeble flashlight's glare, was a sight which took his sanity to the snapping point. Not fifty feet away, two large eyes, large as dinner plates, with narrow vertical red irises, were trained on him. Rooted to the ground by the paralysis of utter horror, Nelson saw that their color was a weird, unhealthy, greenish-white, rather like the color of a radiolite watch-dial. Strangely intense, these huge orbs wavered not at all, filling him with an unnameable dread, while the strong odor of musk assailed his nostrils. The flashlight slipped from between Nelson's fingers, and no longer having his thumb on the button, flickered out. Helpless, Nelson stood transfixed against a boulder, aware that the strange musky scent was becoming stronger. Then to his ears came a dry scrabbling as of some large body stealthily advancing. Those horrible, unearthly eyes were coming nearer. Fierce, terrible shocks of fear gripped the exhausted aviator. Then the impulse of self-preservation, that most elementary of all instincts, forced him to snatch up the rifle, to sight hastily, blindly, between those two great greenish eyes. Choking out a strangled sob of desperation, Nelson made his trembling finger close over the cold strip of steel that must be the trigger. Like a stage trick, the cavern was momentarily lit by a strong orange-yellow glare. Then the Winchester's report thundered and roared deafeningly. Coincidentally arose a nerve-shattering scream. An exhalation, foul as a corpse long unburied, fanned his face. Terrified, he flattened to the rock wall as a huge, though dangerously agile body hurtled by with the speed of a runaway horse. Presently followed the sound of a ponderous fall, then a series of shrill, ear-piercing gibberings and squeakings, like those of a titanic rat, squeaks that rang like the chorus of hell itself. Gradually they grew fainter, while in the darkness the heavy air of the tunnel became rank with the odor of clotting blood. End of Part A